Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 16. So go ahead and open up your Bibles or just follow along on the screen. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in this land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to say before I pray and and get into the word of the Lord, it's a privilege to be here with you guys. I imagine everybody who stands in this pulpit that's a a guest preacher says that. Uh, I genuinely mean it. I love your church so much. You have blessed me personally. You have blessed my church. You uh, have land that you'll eventually be moving to, to, Lord willing, that's just uh, just north of my neighborhood. So I purposefully go the longer way so that I can drive by the sign that says, Future Home of Christ Redeemer, and I can pray for you. Uh, I earnestly ask our God that your witness would make my neighbors come to know Jesus. Uh, so this is no uh, mere pulpit supply for me. I, I love you. I, I don't know many of you by name, but I love your church. I'm so grateful for the way the Lord has just continued to sustain you through difficult times and through your prayer sustain me and our church through difficult times. So let me pray for us and we'll talk about our precious Savior. Father, what a wonderful gift your Son is. What a treasure that He is. And We have the unthinkable pleasure of having our eyes opened to His wonders. But we also live in the difficult now and not yet where we've seen Him with the eyes of faith. We can gaze at His wonderful face through the eyes of faith, but we also live in this broken world that is constantly pulling at our attention towards lesser things that do not deserve our attention, things that we were not made to adore. And so I thank you that we don't just have to read the tea leaves and guess at what you're like, but rather you sent your son to us to show us what a treasure that he is. And so I pray that right now, 2,000 years later, you would quite simply, by your Spirit's power, open the eyes of our hearts to the wonders that we have in him, and that seeing his wonderful face might make all the other lesser things that don't deserve our attention fade into the background and we might treasure Him, we might see His infinite surpassing worth, and we might, as a result, sell everything in order to gain Him and be found in Him, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, 548 years ago in Caprese, Italy, maybe one of the greatest artists ever was born, Michelangelo. This was before he became a Ninja Turtle, back when he was a artist. And he painted, one of the things he's probably most well-known for was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, uh, which he did at a very young age. has been admired by thousands uh, to this day. I, my, my neck was sore for weeks when my wife and I visited, and you're just looking at the ceiling for 40 minutes. Uh, my hand was also sore because an angry Italian grandma scolded me for talking in the sacred chapel. But the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is not actually what Michelangelo is known for. It's not, not what he considered to be his best work. In fact, he called it a waste of his time. <laughs> uh, what he considered to be his crowning achievement, what he considered to be his best work, uh, is what actually many consider to be the best work of art ever made by human hands, and that is the statue of David. Art historian Giorgio Vasari said this, without any doubt, this figure, the statue of David, has put in the shade every other statue, ancient or modern, Greek or Roman, to be sure anyone who has seen Michelangelo's David has no need to see anything else by any other sculptor, living or dead. The statue of David is considered to be the pinnacle of art by many considered maybe to be the, the most beautiful art piece ever made by human hands. He finishes it in 1504, and then it's been admired for centuries up to this day. And in fact, a couple decades ago, in 1991, as many were admiring it in the museum that it is placed, there was a, a 47-year-old man who decided he was going to jump the ropes, and he had a hammer that he had brought, and he began to hit one of David's feet and actually chipped away one of his toes until he was eventually tackled, wrestled to the ground and being forced to stop, not by police and not by museum security, rather just by fellow museum goers. Saw him doing this, saw him breaking the statue of David, wrestled him to the ground, forced him to stop. And so why do I start a sermon talking about ancient art? Because I have a very, very real question. What is it that drives fellow museum goers, like any one of us that would have been traveling to this museum, what drives them to jump over ropes and force a vandal to stop? It's not their property. They don't own the statue. Value is not being lost for them. What is it that they don't just go ask him, hey, sir, could you please stop? They do whatever it takes to get him to stop. They tackle him, wrestle him to the ground until the police can come and put him in handcuffs. And I think the answer is there is a deep longing in every human heart to behold beauty. There's a deep longing, the way where our hearts are wired, to treasure glory. We were made to worship beauty and glory. And even when we see an echo of the beauty we were truly made for, there's something deep down in us that forces us to let it shine. And when it's being defaced, to stop that vandalism. And we're going to see today, not just the statue of David, some echo of beauty. We're going to see the beauty we were made for with a capital B. We're going to see the treasure we were made to prize with a capital T, the treasure himself, Jesus is going to unfold it for us as he teaches in these parables in Matthew where he's unfolding what the kingdom of heaven 
is like. So we'll see the beauty we were made for, a beauty that makes the statue of David look like a kindergartner's clay project. And we'll see what beholding this beauty, what seeing this treasure is meant to drive us to do, the ropes we're meant to jump over, if you will. So I'll teach through these two parables. We'll be in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. There's two parables that have the same meaning. I'll teach through them both, and then we'll just kind of draw out some of the lessons that Jesus wants us to see here. But let's look at the first one, verse 44. Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's in Matthew 13, which is this long section where Jesus is telling parable after parable, and what it's meant to do is reveal the hidden things about the kingdom of God for those who have ears to hear. What is the kingdom of God like? What is God, the king of the kingdom, like? And here, one of the ways he's illuminating the stained glass of the kingdom is by just telling a story of a man who's walking through a field and happens to stumble upon some treasure that had been hidden in that field. So back in Jesus' day, before they had ways to secure your valuables, banks and things like that, one of the things they would do, they had to kind of get creative. And so if there was a mountain nearby with some caves in it, you would take your valuable things, put them in jars, and hide them in the cave. Nobody, Nobody but you knew it was there, it was hidden. Or if there was no caves nearby, you would take something and dig a hole and hide it in the ground. Perhaps you'll be familiar with uh, Matthew 25, the famous parable of the talents. A master gives one servant ten talents, one servant five, and one servant one. The ten goes and makes more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The five goes and makes more. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then what does the one uh, servant with the one talent do? He buries it in the ground, which is either weird or he's being just dumb or... He's trying to preserve it. He's trying to hide it. He's not being very faithful and going and making more, but rather he's just trying to keep what he has secure. So any day where armies could quite literally invade you, right? there's no GPS to see them coming from far off, armies could invade you and take all your things, or maybe you're going to go on a long journey and you want to make sure your house, your things are secure, you would bury something in the ground, and then if an army did invade you and killed you, or you left on a journey and didn't return, those treasures would stay buried for generations and generations, sometimes unknown, right, to anybody. And so that's what's going on here. And there's a man either maybe walking through the field, maybe he's a hired worker in this field, but somehow he stumbles upon this treasure in a field that's not his. And how does he respond? What's the first thing that he does? He covers it up. He covers up the treasure pretty quickly, right? The hidden treasure he rehides if you will, which some people have a bit of concern with this part of of the story. The guy's maybe acting a little bit sketchy, being a little greedy, keeping it for himself. But this the man's ethical behavior is not the point of the parable. I had a professor who said one of the most important lessons in learning how to interpret parables is to know when to stop interpreting. Right? Parables typically have one point. Not every little thing is meant to display something else, like in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. The master who gives out the ten, the five, the one is described as hard and severe. He's kind of sketchy. And so is that meant to show us that God is hard, severe, sketchy? No, because that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is be a faithful steward with what you have. And so similarly here, the man's ethical behavior isn't the point of the parable. The point is do whatever it takes to gain the treasure of the kingdom. Do whatever it takes. 
to gain the treasure of the kingdom. And that's exactly what this man does. He finds it, he rehides it, and then he goes and sells everything that he has so that he might buy the field. He doesn't sell most of what he has. He doesn't just sell his safety net. He doesn't just sell his inheritance. He sells everything that he has. He drains his bank account. He puts his house on the market. He puts his car on Craigslist. He puts his clothes on Facebook Marketplace. He liquidates absolutely everything in order that he might buy that field, which is unbelievably foolish. It's a very unwise thing to do unless the worth of the treasure so outweighs everything you're losing, unless the value of the treasure so eclipses everything that you're selling. And that's apparently what this man sees. He sells all that he has. He buys the field. And you may be wondering, why doesn't he just take the treasure I think what's going on here is he could take the treasure, right? Nobody knows that it's there. He could take it, but he doesn't own the field. Maybe the person who does own the field hears about it and thinks that's rightfully my treasure, and so he sues him or whatever he would do to get the treasure. But this man wants to make absolutely sure that this treasure is mine and it can never be taken away from me. So he's going to sell everything and he's going to buy the field so that the field is his and the treasure is rightfully his. That's what he does, but notice that's not all. There's one very, very, very important thing left. What is the fuel for this man's actions? What is it that's driving this man to sell all that he has and buy the field? It's joy in the treasure. In his joy, he sold all that he had and bought the field. Notice, selling everything that he owns is not a sad occasion. It's not even a bittersweet occasion. It is an occasion for great joy. When you buy a new house, you're excited, right? You're very excited, right? We've been working up to this. We've been saving up for this. Finally, we're here. We're going to raise our family in this house. We're very excited, but you're also a little sad, right? Because if you live in McKinney, you just paid $9 trillion for that home, right? And so you're happy, but you're also like, we don't have any money anymore. So you're gut punch happy, right? That's not what's happening to this man. He is not saying, I've got this treasure, but no money. He's saying, I have the treasure that eclipses all other worldly gain. His heart is filled, is bursting with joy. It has not been a hardship to sell all that he has. Rather, it is a delight. The joy in his heart dwindles any other possible pain because the value of the treasure so outweighs everything else. You see that? So that's the first parable that we see. The man who stumbles upon a treasure in the field. The second one is similar. Look at verse 45. Jesus speaking, again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus, again, trying to show us what is the kingdom of heaven like, now tells a story of this merchant on an intense search, an intense search 
for fine pearls. So merchants in Jesus' day are men who would travel long distances looking for treasure so that they could sell that treasure and make a living, right? Maybe make a really good living. If they find something that's rare, they go and they sell it. They're going to make a lot off of it. So this merchant in particular is hunting down vigorously fine pearls, plural, notice. He's looking for pearls, which in that day were a great way to display your wealth. We live in the day where you can kind of make really good-looking fake pearls. They didn't have that technology back in that day. It was a great way of displaying wealth. Pearls would go in crowns. Pearls would go on the gates of kings, right? What do we call the gates of heaven? The pearly Gates, right, where we meet St. Peter, if you've got a Catholic background, right? So a great display of value. That's what this man is hunting for so that he can sell those pearls and make a lot of money for himself, make a, lot of, make a fortune for himself. And on this hunt for pearls, plural, he finds one. He finds one pearl that is described as having great value. He finds, if you will, a priceless pearl. He finds, as Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, says, a peerless pearl, one pearl whose beauty, whose value eclipses all others. And how does he respond when he finds this pearl? Does he throw it in his bag and say, okay, one down, thousand to go, and I'm just going to keep on searching? Does he say, ooh, I want to find others like this, maybe I can gain a great fortune for myself? No, he says, I'm done searching. And instead of selling the pearl for a fortune, he sells his fortune for the pearl. He not only says, I'm done looking for any other pearls. This one is greater than all the other pearls in the world put together. He then, like the man in the field, goes and sells all that he has to get this one pearl. He doesn't say, ooh, now I can be rich. He says, now I will sell all my riches to get this one pearl pearl because this pearl outshines all the other riches in the world. So there's the two parables. Two men who both find treasures, both have the same reaction of selling everything, both are overjoyed in having their treasure, and both apparently leave all. Their life totally pivots. Everything was yesterday, and it's the first day of the rest of their life with this treasure. Now, what do these two parables have to teach us? What do these two parables teach us? What does Jesus want our eyes focused on as he teaches these parables? I think four things I want to look at. I want to look at longing, finding, selling, and rejoicing. Longing, finding, selling, and rejoicing. Let's look at the first, longing. So, both of these men that we see have this deep longing for a treasure to treasure, something to set all their affections on. Notice the merchant is searching for it. The man in the field isn't necessarily searching. He's just kind of walking. But the second he finds the treasure, his heart explodes. All of a sudden, he says, this is the thing I was made for. This is the thing I was looking for. He wasn't necessarily searching for it, but when he finds it, it awakens in his heart a satisfaction of a longing he didn't even know was there. And that, both of those men, represent something that's true of every single person in this room and is true of every human being that's ever existed. We have deep within our souls a longing 
for beauty and glory, a longing to be satisfied in treasure. You were made to worship. You were made, your heart is wired to have an object of your greatest affections. You can't do anything about it. You can't escape it. Somebody hits the statue of David, you will jump the rope line to stop it. You do have right now an object of your greatest affections because that's how you were created. Why is it that when you see a beautiful piece of art or you'll hear a beautiful poem or you'll look at a mountain range, maybe the Alps, or you'll look at a field of meadows or you'll read a novel that you'll just weep and maybe not know why, you just have this sense of being overwhelmed, you almost get the sense of longing for more. There's something out there that I can't really describe that I just feel this stirring for. Almost like there's this awakening of there's a satisfaction out there that I have not found here yet. There's this longing that we all have. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not very artsy, so paintings don't really do it for me. Okay, well, I guarantee you, you've cried at like the Super Bowl or, you know, the allies storming the beaches of Normandy. There's something you find beautiful. There's something that makes your mouth drop and that makes you speechless, make you want to stop talking. You want to make everybody else around you stop talking just so you can bask. This deep longing in our hearts. And C.S. Lewis actually says that's actually something that's woven throughout all creation. We have woven throughout creation what he called stabs of joy. These things in the beautiful creation of God that are meant to awaken us to this reality that we were made for another world. We were made to be satisfied by something that we have not found yet here, whether it's the Super Bowl or the mountain range or a Rembrandt painting or whatever. And he says, if you trust the things that stab you, if you look at the Alps and think the Alps is what I was made for and you worship the Alps, or your kids, as you see them and you just weep, I was made for my kids, or I was made to, I don't know, be in love with sports, the Super Bowl, whatever, all of a sudden that thing that was meant to point beyond itself to something else turns into an idol that will break your heart and will leave you empty. Lewis says this, they, the mountain range, the Super Bowl, whatever, are not the thing itself, right? They're pointing to something else. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country we have never visited. And if you trust it, it will break your heart. And here's the great tragedy of humanity post-Genesis 3, that's all we do. All we do is look for our ultimate meaning and our ultimate satisfaction in things here, and they only leave us empty. We live in the day of instant gratification. That's our desire, right? If something is loading on our phones for seven seconds, we want to update our plan, right? Because that is outrageous. I want it instantly, right? I order something on Amazon, and it's like at my house that same day to the point where I'm like, I want them to take longer. It's freaky how quick I get what I want. We live in the day of instant gratification, and we have the ability to satisfy our desires or more access to things we think satisfy better than any other age. And my question for you is, is it working for us? Are we the most satisfied generation of all time? Are we the most content people of all time, or are we the most miserable? 
Are we the most discontent? Let me ask you a very, very important theological question. Does Michael Jordan seem happy to you? Does the cast of the show Friends seem happy to you right now? Or do they and Michael Jordan really, 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 really want it to be the 90s again? Does Hollywood and the people who display these wonderful acts of, you know, marriage and romance and these things that, oh my goodness, if only I had what they had, are their marriages in real life just beacons of satisfaction, beacons of fulfillment, or are they quite literally the worst example of marriages that could exist? And lest you think I'm just picking on celebrities, we do this every single day, looking for our satisfaction here. We say all the time, if I just got that promotion, then it'll be okay. If we just get through this difficult season, then everything will be okay. I'll finally be content. If my kids get into a good school, then everything will finally be okay. Or if this person got elected, then finally everything will fall into place everything will be okay. And over and over and over again, we see that leads to the same barren land of emptiness, yet we keep trying. Every year, there's a new bestseller of here's 10 more steps to the true happy life, right? Have a big house or be a minimalist or be rich or be in nature or pour yourself into your kids or pour yourself into yourself, right? Really go on this journey of discovering who you are. There's all these different strategies. They all lead to the same barren land of emptiness. And the tragic irony is we're made, we, have, we all have this longing, and we search everywhere except the one place where true satisfaction can be found, or rather I should say the one person where true satisfaction can be found. You were wired, you were made for the pearl Your heart is designed for the treasure in the field, the flower, not just the scent. And so these men, these longing men, find the flower. They find the tune. They find the land, right? They find the kingdom, or more importantly, they find the king of the kingdom. You were designed to set your affections on Jesus. Your heart is wired to find the satisfaction for every longing in Him, in Him alone. You are made to have Him as your greatest treasure. And when you actually do find Him, notice the reaction of the men in this field. When you find the treasure, when you find the one who sculpted the Alps, when you find the one who carved out the Grand Canyon, when you find the land, the one where all the beauty comes from, then you can say, like these men, here's the one I was made for. All of a sudden, I find a meaning that isn't just a quick thing that seems to fade away the second I wrap my fingers around it, but it's a foundation beneath my feet. I found a rock that will not move. I found a fortress that I can flee to no matter the difficult season. Everything in my life has all of a sudden clicked because I haven't just found a reflection of beauty. I've found beauty himself. The only treasure that won't actually leave you empty, the only one that doesn't lead to the barren land, the one who leads to the streams of living water. 
Augustine, a famous church father, we know a lot about his life. He's kind of like the first church history figure to write on his own life, like an autobiographical account called the Confessions. Uh, very famous book, maybe the most famous book in church history, Augustine's Confessions. But he details it's his life. It's like, a, it's like a prayerful autobiography. He's just talking to God the whole time, detailing his life. And his life could be summarized very accurately as just a search for satisfaction. He's looking everywhere. He tries different religions. He's just trying to find satisfaction, and then he eventually finds God. And in his autobiographical account, he says this, praying to God, What does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What does the power of the mighty desire except to be feared? But none has power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a love they cannot lose? But who can give a love that does not fade or die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you to seek these things that it cannot find except in you. Oh, Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So, here he is. Here's the treasure. Notice Jesus hasn't thrown these men a map and say, here, search for the treasure. Or he hasn't thrown them a metal detector and say, this might help in your search for the treasure. He says, here is the treasure. I'm here. So the question we need to ask ourselves as we're standing in front of the treasure in the field, are we holding the pearl of great value is, will you leave the field? Will you toss the pearl back into the ocean and keep on searching, assuming that doesn't satisfy, or will you sell everything to gain this treasure? And both of these men give us the example of selling everything. When they find the treasure, notice they now have one mission in life. I was just walking through a field, and I found this treasure, and now I have one mission in life. I was just sailing, and I found this one pearl, and I now have one mission. Do whatever it takes to make this treasure mine. Do whatever it takes to make this mine and make sure this can never be taken away from me, even if that means selling everything I have. Notice, Jesus will not go on the top shelf with your other prizes. He will not be one of many treasures. He will be your supreme treasure, or you will cast him aside. He will be the chief object of your affections, or nothing at all. You will have all of him, or you will have none of him. And these men choose all of him. And key to understanding this, key to understanding this man's action, these men's actions, and what Jesus is calling us to, is this idea of worth. The idea of value. The man in the field has everything he possesses. Or this treasure. The merchant has everything he possesses and all the pearls that he could possibly find, or this one pearl. And they're asked, what is worth more? Which one is more valuable? And both of them say, infinitely more, the treasure, to the point where it's not even comparable. The king is infinitely worth, his worth infinitely outweighs 
everything else that could ever be gained, everything I have and everything else that I could have, he infinitely outweighs it. They make a worth-based decision, which we do every single day. We constantly make great sacrifices for things that we believe are worth it. Right? You will sacrifice your time and your money and your physical health sometimes for your kids, right? Why? Because they're worth it. You'll move away to a great job, right? You'll sacrifice a community and close relationships. Why? Because that new job is worth it. We see the world like this. We do this all the time. And these men here are saying, this king, the kingdom of God that I've just found is infinitely worth it. The value of this pearl eclipses everything else put together. Or like the psalmist, better is one day in the courts of the Lord. Better is one day standing in your doorway than a thousand elsewhere. One smile of God infinitely outweighs all the smiles of the world. That's their decision. He is infinitely worth it. What about Paul? Do we see an example of this elsewhere? The Apostle Paul, whose life before he meets Jesus, you could say is one of accumulating, uh, he's gaining everything that there is to be gained, right? He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. His reputation is high. He's well thought of. He's got the PhD of PhDs. He's highly sought after for his wisdom, right? He's the top of the top. He's gained, you could say, everything that there is to be gained for him in this world. And then he meets Jesus. And what does he say in Philippians 3 as he compares everything that he has gained before he met Jesus to Jesus? Philippians 3, 4, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why, Paul? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Why, Paul? In order that I might gain my treasure, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Why does Paul lose everything, and not just lose everything, but then endure unthinkable persecutions and hatred from family and death threats and eventually death. Why do you do that, Paul? Tell me, what, what could possess a man to sell everything and lose everything and then endure horribleness, a horrible life? Why? To gain him. The surpassing worth of knowing my treasure, of having my treasure, infinitely outweighs anything this world could offer me or anything this world could throw at me. He says later, I consider all the sufferings of this world not com worthy of comparing to the surpassing worth, right, of, of what's coming to me in glory. The Bible is screaming at you as you stand in the field with the treasure at your feet or you stand on the boat with the pearl in your hand. The Bible is screaming at you, put Jesus on the scales and see how he does. So let's ask that question. If you were to put Jesus on the scales, the value scales, the worth-based scales of your life, how does he do? Is he just on the top shelf with your other treasures? You really like him, right? This is the Bible Belt. It's almost hard to not like Jesus, right? Dies for you. He gives us not hell, right? He's awesome, right? Who, who doesn't like Jesus, but is he one of many treasures? Have you sold everything 
to gain him? Do you say it's, it's worth losing everything because his surpassing worth is so much better? And if you don't know the answer to that question, the, there is a way to tell. And it's by looking at our final thing, uh, rejoicing. What is the object of your affections? Here's how you tell how he does on the scales. What is the supreme object of your affections? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor, said, whatever is the greatest joy, whatever is your greatest joy and treasure, that is your God. Whatever is your primary joy, whatever is the chief object of your affections, that is your God. So ask yourself, what is the fuel of your life? What is it that drives you to get out of bed in the morning? What is it that drives you to live the life that the Lord has put before you? Because the men in these parables have one thing, joy in their treasure. In his joy, he sold all that he had and bought the field. The Christian life is a life of great joy. The Christian life is a life of knowing, of communing with your Savior Jesus, the treasure of treasures, the priceless pearl. The Christian life is not denying all the fun stuff now so that you get heaven later. The Christian life is not, I'll deny all the fun pleasures and satisfactions here and pursue, I don't know, cold moral obedience, but then the judge will be happy with me and I won't burn forever. That's how many where we live conceptualize Christianity. Obey God, accept Jesus, walk the aisle, write it in your Bible, and that equals not burning, right? The Christian life of the Scriptures is not one of denying pleasure, rather it's the greatest pursuit of pleasure, the greatest pursuit of satisfaction, the greatest pursuit of treasure in God. In your presence, we read, isn't a little bit of joy is fullness of joy. At your right hand, my King, are pleasures forevermore. I say to our people often at Parkway, Jesus, in inviting you to treasure Him, is not inviting you to eat your vegetables. This will taste really bad, but you'll be stronger, whatever lies we tell our kids. I don't know. I've got three-year-olds. I just know from when I was raised, you make them eat the green stuff no matter how much they don't like it. That is not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and find life in me. I am the bread of life that will finally satisfy that hungry that hunger that you have that has never been satisfied. I am the living water that will finally quench that parched palate that you have. I'm the one that actually satisfies your longings and actually fills your heart with deep, lasting, abiding, not circumstance-depending joy. That's Christianity. You obey out of delight for the one that you've gained, not out of cold duty to avoid an eternal punishment. You see the radical difference between those two. The Scriptures are putting it before you. Come and know the one who satisfies, the one who can give you joy. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean like God and He'll give you a bunch of stuff. It means delight yourself in the Lord as your supreme treasure and He will give you the desires of your heart, which are Him. 
for all eternity, you will be on your knees looking at his wonderful face and praising him. And you can do that now with the eyes of faith. You can have him as your supreme treasure, him as your ultimate desire. So, how does he do on the scales? Ask yourself, is he my greatest joy? Does gaining him fill my heart with the fuel of joy? Is that what drives me? Is he the object of your affections? Is he your greatest delight? Is he your treasure? And most of us, I imagine, unless you're glorified currently, the answer there is not as much as it should be, if not no. And then we assume the things that are actually robbing us from our joy in Him are the big bad things of our day, right? A certain political party or atheism or wokeism, all the big things. We think that's the main enemy to our joy, and it, it certainly will encroach on your joy. But let me tell you the primary thing that robs you of your daily joy, it's not the big bad things. It's your satisfaction with lesser treasures, your distraction with lesser treasures, some of which are good, but they do not deserve your life. C.S. Lewis, again, speaking on this subject, says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem to our Lord He finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We think Christianity, again, we, we, we're filled with passion for all the fun, sin stuff of the world, and i got to push that down. Lewis says, no, 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 you've got that backwards. God doesn't define, find your desires too strong. He finds your desires too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by, offer, by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Is your life, is your week, is your day filled with mud pies? filled with things that you are not made for, things that may be good, they deserve 2% of your attention, they don't deserve all of your attention, when the holiday at the sea has been offered to you, when the priceless pearl has been held out before you. Look at me. Sell everything to gain Him. The more you gaze at the pearl, the more all the mud pies, you'll actually be seen as mud pies. You'll see that you're not eating a sweet meal, you're eating sand. You're drinking not something that's actually going to sustain you, you're drinking poison. When you taste the living water that actually satisfies, you'll actually see the folly of everything else of all other ridiculous pursuits. John Owen, the great Puritan, says this, the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. That's the promise of the treasure. Gain Him, and you won't be gut-punch happy you'll see everything that you just lost is infinitely worth losing. And you'll sell it with joy when you see Him. Lastly, 
The only way to actually accept the invitation to the holiday at the sea is through the gospel. And the gospel is not primarily about your pursuit of God as your treasure. The gospel is primarily about God's pursuit of you as His treasure. You were made for the garden. You were. God made man and woman in His image to dwell in the garden paradise with Him, but Adam and Eve and us with them treasured the fruit more than walking with God in the cool of the day. And though that bite of fruit instantly, the thing we thought would satisfy, what were the results? It left us naked and ashamed, and we've been eating the fruit ever since. The story of the Bible, really, the story of the Old Testament, is about man seeking satisfaction in false treasures and being left empty. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, so that we could have the treasure we were made for, sent His Son, who comes and does say, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who can actually satisfy that hunger that you've always felt. I'm the living water. I'm the one who one drink means you'll never have to come back to this well again because I'll actually quench your thirst. And He will eventually go to, cro- go to the cross. And on the cross, in His greatest moment of agony, He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? Is he just crying out because the nails hurt really bad? Or is he, in his greatest moment, in a sense, laying down his treasure, the treasure of the Father? Is the Father, in a very real sense, laying down his treasure? There's never been a love like the love between the Father and the Son. Your love for your kids or your spouse multiplied by a trillion does not begin to sniff the John 17 love between the Father and the Son, and yet we see on the cross the Son is forsaken. The treasure is laid down so that you could have Him as your treasure. Acts 20, 28 calls us, the people of God, his, that were bought by Jesus' blood. So what's happening on the cross? Jesus Christ, in a very real way, is selling all that He has in order to buy you. And what does Hebrews 12 tell us is the fuel for his actions? Why does he do it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The only reason you can have the king and the kingdom as your treasure is because he made you his treasure. The only reason you can find the kingdom is because the king first found you. The only reason you can sell all for the pearl is because before God said, let there be light, He decided He would set His love on you, choose you to make you His treasure, and He would sell all to gain you. And in His love, He's revealed Himself to you. You do have ears to hear. If you've come to know Him, here He is revealing Himself to you. Here's the treasure of treasures. Searching does not need to continue. Here He is. So, sell everything in your joy find Him, the only thing that can truly satisfy. Let's pray. Father, we love You. It is truly unthinkable when we 
do just bask in the realities of the gospel. It seems we're so quick to just view Sunday as a routine thing we do. We come to this place, we meet people that we really enjoy, and we hear a sermon from the Bible. And sometimes that just becomes white noise to us. It becomes routine to us. And all you're trying to do is orient our eyes towards ultimate reality, that our best day here doesn't compare to our worst day with you, that all the so-called joys in this life combined do not begin to sniff the joy that is found when we find your Son. And so I, I pray for you to do what only you can do. Outside of your intervention, Father, this is nothing but a motivational talk that fades by the parking lot. And so I pray that your Spirit would powerfully move in our hearts that we might actually begin to see, begin to grasp, might begin to fill the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, that we might, uh, as Paul prays in Ephesians 3, begin to know the heights and the depths and the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you would root us deeply in a love that only you give, and that we might genuinely live in this world as those who have found the King, that we might begin to look strangely otherworldly to the people who don't know you because we are made for another world with you. And that that witness might just, like Moses coming down the mountain, begin to kind of radiate out of us that our love for you, our satisfaction in you, doesn't make us pursue the false treasures of this world like the rest of the world does. And then it might have this pleasing aroma that as we go out as ambassadors to your son, there might be a peculiar drawing from those who don't know you to say, I, I, I don't know what it is, but they have a peace that I want. And they have a selflessness that I want. And they have a joy that I want. And that our lives would be uh, a giant arrow that points to the satisfaction that's found in you. And that you might, as a result, be infinitely glorified. That we might see that we glorify you when we enjoy you forever. And many more might come to know that wonderful satisfaction that's found in your son. And they might know you as father and you might gain the praise that you're worthy of. Only you can do that. So I pray that you would in your son's wonderful name. Amen.